and just uh, to relax. Because uh, today's session is split into three parts. And the first part, building effective relationships, is very much going to be about building the effective relationship to oneself. Because certainly in Buddhism, if one has a very peaceful, kind, caring, loving relationship to oneself, then all the other relationships will be will blossom from that foundation. So this morning, I'm going to be talking about your relationship to yourself. And then after lunch, we're going to go into your relationship in your family, especially in your marriage. And I'm very happy to talk about that part of relationships, because if we get it right from the beginning, then you don't come and worry myself and other monks about your problems. <laughs> And of course, you know, you're not monks and so your marriage is one of the most important parts of your life. And if we get that right, then we can have a wonderful time afterwards. And you may think it's a bit strange that a monk who's never been married is going to talk about marriage and sex and relationships. <laughs> but please know I wasn't always a monk. <laughs> and lastly, we're going to take it further into your relationships with your career, with life itself. So we're going to go on like three little steps here. First of all, your relationship to yourself, and then your relationship to your immediate family, and then your relationship to your business, your colleagues, your friends, and to the world itself. The little Three little steps there. But they're all founded on your relationship to yourself, which is one of my experiences in monastic life, because I've been a monk now for th over 30 years, and much of my life has been spent by myself, in solitude. I spent long periods of my life not seeing anyone, not hearing anyone. In fact, a, two or three years ago, I had a wonderful period of six months when I went on a retreat, and I never saw or spoke or heard from another human being for six months. It was a, a very wonderful time for me, a time of intense retreat. And of course some people think, how can you do that? Six months without talking, I can't even manage six minutes, not even six seconds. <laughs> without seeing any other person, how can you do that? Even in prisons, when you have solitary confinement, it's not solitary at all because you have to be visited by prison psychologists and guards and the governors of the prison. But certainly for a monk it was very much a solitary confinement for over, you know, for six months. But for me it was a wonderful time. But other times you see me like today in front of a huge crowd of people where I'm relating in a big way to other people. So how can you do that? How can you actually have this beautiful relationship to yourself so you're happy in solitude and you're also happy in front of your friends? I think I've already given the answer there when I just said, now I'm in front of my friends. I've known many of you for several years now, and I can recognize you and I say hello and I know who you are, and you know who I am. So it's like just talking with friends, that's all. So that's why I don't get nervous up on a stage, because you're all my friends. And you can see here that when you're by yourself, if you are a friend to yourself, then you have the foundation of a solid relationship to yourself. A lot of the time we aren't friendly to ourselves. And I've seen that often in the way that people try and meditate. 
because meditation is a as a core part of Buddhist practice. But I can actually see just the way that people approach their meditation. Sometimes they're not friendly towards themselves, and all of the little defilements which are in the mind, they try and and control them and get rid of them. Oh, you're so tough. You should be friends to yourself. Because if you're friends to yourself, even if you're friends to your defilements, all those defilements, they just vanish away. Just with that friendliness and the kindness. And it's actually that friendliness, that kindness, that compassion, that peace, that letting go, is the key to an effective relationship to oneself. You don't have to be perfect, I found, to like yourself. In fact, if you try and be perfect, you'll never like yourself. You'll always be trying to, to change yourself, trying to control yourself. You may know that uh, in Buddhism, for those of you who know some of the, the uh, traditional aspects of Buddhism, there's one person in Buddhism who's very similar to the Christian idea of a devil. And that fellow is called Mara. And I was always fascinating with the, this role, this concept of Mara in Buddhism. It was Mara who came to try and tempt the person who was about to be the Buddha just before his enlightenment. We tried to stop him becoming enlightened. But what really uh, gave me a huge insight into what that really means is when I found out that in the Buddhist cosmology, in all the different levels of heaven, this fellow Mara is a chief of this very, very high heaven realm. And this particular heaven realm is the realm of those who wield power over others. To put it in common English, it's like the controlled freak in chief. And that's like what Mara is, the controller. And when I understood exactly what this Mara really means, this is a controller, the one who wants to manipulate, the one who wants to change, the one who wants to keep you in his power just by always wanting you to change and control things. I understood now what that really means. That's like a hatred. If you want to try and control others, it means you don't like them, you don't appreciate them, you don't really see their good qualities. And this comes with your relationships with other people, which I'll deal with later on this afternoon. How many of you want to change your children, want to change your parents, want to change your wife, your husband? It's, uh, it's one of those uh, old sayings about a marriage. Just you know, when a woman uh, falls in love with a man and marries him, she wants to change him. She would think, she's got a few faults, but you know, under my influence I can just you know, tweak him this way and tweak him that way and get him just perfect. And of course, uh, the and he, he thing is, he, uh, he doesn't change. As you marry him now, that's the way he will stay. Actually, it usually gets worse. <laughs> and as, no, it doesn't get worse. As for the, the, the woman, when you marry the woman as a man, you want her to stay the same. You know, as young and as beautiful as she is now. <laughs> but of course she doesn't stay the same. <laughs> but the point is that if it's like a, a love like that, which is always uh, demands perfection, doesn't allow change, you know, that means that there's no possibility there. 
of happiness and peace. And it's the same with yourself. If you accept, if you want perfection for yourself, you want to change yourself to be something different. There's no possibility of an effective relationship to yourself. So a lot of life is learning your relationship to yourself, to be more at peace with yourself, more accepting of yourself. Even all the little faults you have, to be more acknowledging and more forgiving and more accepting. Which is how you learn to be at peace with yourself. Sometimes that people in this world think that the highest gift, the highest gain you can ever get is peace of mind. And what actually is that peace of mind? Sometimes people think, oh you have to meditate for a long time, you have to be fully enlightened, you have to get into these deep states of meditation before you can be at peace. But the point is that no, no, you don't need to be so perfect to gain that peace of mind. To gain peace of mind, you don't have to change the world as much as accepting the world for what it is. It's more like an appreciation of things. I learned this with my teachers in Thailand who always would say that no matter where you go in the jungles you will never see a perfect forest. Actually when I went to Australia I did start to see some perfect forests. I see some forests where all the trees were in straight lines and in rows but they were, <laughs> they were planted by the forestry department. They weren't natural. But in a real forest, in a real jungle, as many of you have seen, the trees are leaning all over the place. There are some with their branches that have fallen off. There are some which are diseased. There are some which are dying and some which are dead. And that is what makes the forest beautiful. If all those trees were in line, if they were perfect, straight, fully grown trees without diseases here or wounds there, it would not be beautiful. If you look at nature, whether it's waterfalls or whether it's uh, rocks, sometimes people try and create nature, you know, in like Sunway City, Lagoon or wherever they do. And it's never quite the same because people make the mistake of making it too perfect. When it's too perfect, it's not natural, it's not beautiful. It doesn't inspire the mind. In the city in which I live, in Perth, we have this beautiful ocean on the west coast. And on the evenings, especially from my monastery which is high up on a hill, you can see the sunsets over the ocean. But I notice very early on the most beautiful sunsets occur when there's a few clouds on the horizon. Or actually, even better, a little bit of pollution, some smoke or smog. Because when there's some imperfection in the sky, a cloud of dust or a cloud of uh, water vapor, then that spreads the light of the setting sun across the horizon. And it's only then you see these amazing oranges and deep reds and purples streaking ac across the sky. And it's only then is a sunset so awe-inspiring and beautiful. You need imperfection to make it beautiful. And it's the same with a character you live with, a husband or wife. 
There was this one Buddhist in the early years when I went to Australia and he came to me to complain about his marriage. His problem, he said, was his wife was too perfect. <laughs> and it was true, she was just a wonderful wife. She was beautiful, she was caring, she never argued, she was a great cook, always good at housework, never complained. And he couldn't stand her. <laughs> he was too perfect. And after six months they got divorced. <laughs> it's true. Because imagine if you're with somebody so perfect and you're not, you get embarrassed. Or you feel uncomfortable. Because you know, your faults really stand out. <laughs> you can't win, can you? But the point is that a little bit of imperfection is sometimes called character. It gives you something to like, something which is cute, something which is charming. If it was perfect, it would be like some robot, some plastic, and that's what he was married to, like a robot, the perfect woman, and he hated it. So I think you can get the meaning of this whole flow of stories and arguments. That having a good relationship with yourself is appreciating imperfection to seeing that as character, as features. Now you've all read that story, the first story which opens up that book, opening the door of your heart about the two bad bricks in the wall. That is actually, that particular story has been cut out from the book, has been reprinted and is used as a pamphlet by our local chapter of Amnesty International. Because in Perth, whenever they are protesting against some uh, violation of human rights in the world, the organizer of Amnesty International in Perth decided she wants that story to give out to all of the people supporting their causes so they can keep things in perspective. That sure, they are criticizing some faults in this government or that organization, but they don't want to criticize a whole organization. They just want to criticize the faults, not the organization. They're not criticizing the government. They're criticizing the bad acts of the government. It's one of those great psychological truths of having a good relationship with oneself or others. You never criticize the person. You criticize the fault. You separate the fault from the person. And if you can do that, you understand just how there can be effective responses in this world. For example, you know from the stories in that book and from listening to my talks before, I spent a lot of time in my early years as a monk in Australia going to prisons and giving talks in jails. And one of the strategies which I used was never to call those people in jails criminals. Because if I called them a criminal, I was being judgmental, I was summing up their whole life by the one or two bad things they did. And that was really unfair. Because sure, they had committed that crime, but they'd also done many other things in their life as well. So why define a person by one or two acts which they did which only took up a minor percentage of all the things they did in their life? So I never called them criminals, I always said you're a person who's done a criminal act or maybe two or three criminal acts. But you're a person first, you're the criminal second. But you're the person first, 
So because I related to those people in jail, not as criminals, but as people who had done a criminal act, there was a much better way of communication. And that's why I was very successful. I say one of the compliments which I've got in my life, which I cherish, was when I was phoned in my monastery. I picked up the phone. It was one of the senior officers in one of the prisons in Perth. They wanted me to come back to give some more talks. I said, look, I'm abbot now. I'm too busy. And said, please come back. I said, why? There's other monks, other people going to the jail to help. I said, no, you come back. I said, why? And they gave me this wonderful comment. They said that, I've noticed, he said, I've been in this prison service for many years. All the people which came to your class, once they were released from jail, they never re-offended. Once they came to your class, they never came back to jail ever again. And that really touched me because I know that many times if a people get into the system, if they get caught and they go to jail, they re-offend soon after they get released. It's called recid recidivism. And that was a wonderful quote. He said, so please come back. <laughs> and I thought, what have I done which other people didn't do? And I think that was the main thing which I did. There were people, not criminals. People who had done a criminal act. Now it's the same with you. When you have your relationship to yourself, how do you look upon yourself? When you think of yourself, who are you? Do you think of maybe those faults which happened to you? Or the faults which actually you did? Or the rotten things which happened to you when you were, being, when you were growing up? The painful experiences of your early life? Or the mistakes which you've made in your life? Now you can understand what I mean here because if you start thinking of yourself as your faults, the things which went wrong with you, you may be the abused child, the sibling who didn't really get enough love from their parents, or the person who had a very unhappy childhood, or the person who had this accident or that terrible thing done to them. Or as uh, somebody came up to me and and uh, talked to me the last time I think it was in the BGF, they'd been raped here in Malaysia. Then is that all that there is to you? The lady who was raped, I said, you are a person first, you are the victim secondly. That's only a small part of your life. So please keep it in perspective, using the simile of the brick wall. If you don't, you create this very slanted, biased, unbalanced perspective and relationship to yourself. You do become the victim. That's all you see. And your relationship to yourself becomes one of fear, one of being in a prison, one of unhappiness. And that's not necessary. It's true that you're a person who's had that terrible experiences and terrible experiences have happened to you in your life, but many other good things have happened to you in your life as well. So please remember those good things which have happened to you as well. Then you do get a proper relationship to yourself. It's a relationship of respect. 
And it's fascinating how few people really respect themselves. Many, many years ago, I read this story. It's a fascinating story that it started off in a school in the United States somewhere. It was a primary school, a grade school, maybe you know, 10 year olds, 11 year olds. And there was some conflict in the classroom. And during the conflict, it looked like there was going to be some shouting or even a fight. And the teacher told everyone to sit down. She raised her voice and told everyone to be still. And she said, get out a piece of paper. So all the children got out the piece of paper. Draw a line vertically down the middle of the page. And they did that. Right, on the left-hand side, on the top, put the name of one of the people, on the, your enemy on the other side. The one you want to hit or shout at, the one you don't like, put their name on the top. And they did. On the left-hand side, write down for me all the terrible things they've done, all their faults, the reason why you hate them. And so all the children scribbled down, first of all, the name of the enemy in the classroom. And they put all the things down which they hated. The reason why they deserved to be punched or thrown out of the class or whatever. And of course they soon filled that left-hand side of the page. When they finished, the teacher said, Right, on the opposite side of the page, the right-hand side of the page, I want you to write down what you respect about that person. What you like about them. They're beautiful qualities. And of course that took much longer. But they had to fill that out. And when they did fill it out, the teacher said, Now, tear that page down the middle along the line. So they separated out the two halves of the page. One with all the things they hated in the other person. And the other side, all the things they liked in that person. Now, said the teacher, that left-hand side all the things you hate in your enemy. Screw that up and throw it in the bin. And they had to do that. The right hand side, all the things you like in your enemy. Now go and give that to them with a smile. <laughs> and they did that. And that was a very beautiful way of solving the problem. But it didn't just solve the problem once because the reason this story came to light 30, 40, 50, 60 years later, one of the children from that class had died. And at the funeral service, when the wife, the widow, was talking about her husband and about his life, as is often done now in funeral ceremonies in the West, in fact, usually this takes up most of the funeral services in modern uh, in the, in the West these days. You get the family and friends come out and speak from their heart about the achievements, especially the um, spiritual achievements, their kindness, their generosity, their love. Because they want to celebrate the life. So when this woman came up and started talking about her husband, she mentioned you know, the one of the things which meant so much to him 
was this little piece of paper which he got as a child in school. He keeps this in his wallet all the time, he said, throughout his life. Whenever he was upset or angry, either at me or the children or at the workers, he'd always get out that piece of paper and read it and remember the way to solve conflict. And also, whenever he felt depressed and upset about himself, he'd read out all the kind things his enemy had said about him. And he said that stopped him getting depressed. That solved much of his inner turmoil. And it gave him a perspective on life that he never got that angry with me. He said that saved his life, that little piece of paper, which he'd carried around for 50, 60 years. And she got it out to show the people in the, in the funeral ceremony. And at that point, about three or four people in that little ceremony also stood up because they had been children in the same class, lifelong friends. And they too, from their purses and from their wallets, got out the same piece of paper and waved it. It meant so much to them as well. It was a fascinating story how just that little piece of psychological brilliance by that school teacher in a primary school, in a grade school in the US so many years ago had actually solved so much argument, so much pain, so much depression, so much misery simply by giving people an appreciation of who they are. It's strange that why it is we just focus so much on our faults and what's wrong with us and because of that we lose our confidence, we lose our peace, we lose our happiness and when we start losing that our relationship to ourselves goes so completely crazy that we either have to escape in drugs or alcohol or in depression and as I will say later on if you haven't got a good relationship to yourself you can never have a good relationship with another person. So one of the important things is actually to appreciate oneself with all of your faults. You don't have to be perfect. That was such a wonderful realization in my monastic life to realize you don't need to be perfect to be happy. And this is you know, a teacher like Ajahn Chah you know, who I grew up with. Sometimes he just wouldn't criticize you. You do something wrong and he'd just think it was funny. <laughs> he'd laugh. I expected to be punished. But he would never punish you. He would just accept you. That was strange to me. But after a while of living with a great monk like that, I got the message. Just as he would accept me as I was, for example, I remember once going to him uh, because whenever we needed anything, any requisites, because we were only small monks, no one would ever give anything to a small monk. They'd just give it to the great teachers, Ajahn Chah. So if we needed anything, some toothpaste or a battery for our um, flashlight, we'd go to him and he'd have all these requisites and he'd give it to us. So on this one occasion, I'd run out of soap. So I went to his hut and I said, can I have some soap? The point was though that I was just learning Thai. The Thai word for soap is sabu. But I said sapo. 
very close together, but unfortunately the word sapo means pineapple. <laughs> so he asked me, he said, pineapple? What do you want a pineapple for? And I was just very tight, no, to wash, to wash. <laughs> Ajahn Chah almost fell off his little chair laughing. These Westerners, I don't really understand their culture, but if they want to wash with a pineapple, fair enough. <laughs> But he would never criticize you, <laughs> he'd just make fun and have a good laugh. And I realized from that teaching, because Ajahn Chah would teach by example, I realized that's the way I should relate to myself. So if I made a mistake, I would just laugh with everybody else. And I wouldn't get depressed or upset about myself. If I did something stupid, I would laugh. For example, I remember once one of the jobs which I do is to give marriage blessings. And this man came in with this young Thai girl once. And I said to this man, oh, are you the, sort of the, the father of the groom? <laughs> he said, I am the groom. <laughs> he was so old, he was just a young Thai girl. I mean, he was in his 50s or 60s at least. <laughs> so sometimes, or another time they was doing a funeral service and I was saying, oh we come here to sort of pay respects to you know, this uh, lady in the front, to this lady's mother who's passed away and then this lady in the back stood up and said, I'm not dead, it's my husband, it's her father. <laughs> so you make big mistakes like that but who cares. It's a funeral service as well. You're <laughs> supposed, supposed to get it right. But the, if you do make a mistake, you make fun of it and you accept it. It's part of the character of life. And it's more fuel for my stories. So isn't it, <laughs> isn't it wonderful when you make mistakes like that? I remember, this, I'm not sure if I, when I told this last story here, I remember this on one occasion while I was a monk in Thailand that I was traveling in the northeast of Thailand and it happened that in this period of time there was these many of these, these buses, the public buses going from town to town had somehow caught fire because they were poorly maintained, this was over 25 years ago, they were poorly maintained old buses Sometimes they'd caught a light, very suddenly, and actually people had been caught in that bus and incinerated. And of course it made the newspapers. There was a whole series of these events. One of my fellow monks had been in such a bus, he managed to escape, but you know, his bowl and other requisites had all been burnt. They couldn't get in there to, to get them out again. And so I was travelling in one of these buses one day, and suddenly someone's, because in Thailand you have to sit at the front of the bus, and the reason they put the monks in the front of the bus is because they think the monks have got good karma. <laughs> so it means there can't be any crashes because your good karma is protecting everyone behind. <laughs> Unfortunately what that means is as soon as they get a monk in the, fr monk in the front seat, the driver becomes very heedless because they don't care anymore, they've got monk insurance. 
And worse than that, sitting in the front, you can see all the cars coming straight towards you. It's scary. I remember in this one uh, bus, which was going from Chonbury into Bangkok, this guy saw I was in the front seat, there I was a monk there, don't need to worry, and he was driving, watching the movie on the camera. <laughs> it was so dangerous. But obviously it worked, we didn't have a crash, but on this particular occasion I was in the front seat and somebody shouted from the back, FIRE! And the uh, driver, he slammed on the brakes. As soon as it stopped, he didn't actually get out the entrance, he went out the window as fast as he could. And there was a monk sitting next to me. Now you know that how our rules in Thailand as a monk, you know, we're supposed to be very patient and very calm. We're not supposed to actually rush out and uh, touch uh, females. But he was out straight away, he didn't care. <laughs> and everyone was crowding out and I was sitting in my seat. The main reason I was sitting in my seat because I hadn't read the newspapers, I didn't know all these stories about buses exploding into flames. The reason I stayed still because I was stupid. Because <laughs> I didn't know. But everybody rushed out and I just said, what's going on? What's going on? And one person stayed behind, they checked where the smoke was coming from. It was just a cigarette butt, that was all. <laughs> so they put out the, the fire and everybody came in the bus again because I was sitting in the front seat. As they came out, oh, the Arahat, oh, the great monk, oh, you're not afraid of death, oh. <laughs> He says, sometimes stupidity has its advantages. <laughs> I wasn't a full on faith. <laughs> so sometimes you make a mistake and you get criticized. Sometimes you make a mistake and you get praise. So who knows about praise and, praise and blame. But the point is, you appreciate yourself. That's part of character. So you accept yourself for who you are. You have a good relationship to yourself. That's why that I put the title of that book, Opening the Door of Your Heart, and you know where that comes from, the story of my father, who told me, son, whatever you do in your life, the door of my heart is always open to you. Now, I can repeat that many, many times. Every time I tell that, it goes deeper into you. It's a beautiful story of metta, but it's also a very beautiful expression of enlightenment itself. And here, it's your attitude towards yourself. To be able to say to yourself, me, this little person looking at me now, the person sitting in that seat, to be able to say to yourself, me, the door of my heart is fully open to me, no matter what I've ever done no matter what has ever been done to me, no matter what I ever do, no matter what I'm doing now, the door of my heart is completely open to me. Now that is a powerful statement. And if you can follow the implication of that statement and do that to yourself, you find this amazing experience of unity, being one with yourself, it is called peace of mind. All that unfinished business in your life is now all finished. You're at peace with yourself, you accept yourself. With all of your faults and imperfections, 
Now you accept yourself for who you are. It's called metta, it's called love, it's called peace, it's called freedom. It's how you get that wonderful relationship with yourself. I've been doing that for many, many years. If I give a talk and say something stupid, the door of my heart is open to my own stupidity. You know when I first gave talks as a monk, this was in Perth, people would walk out, they were bored. <laughs> I remember once giving a talk, there was only about 30 people to begin with because they would ring up first of all. I was only the second monk. My predecessor was a monk called Ajahn Jakaro. He gave brilliant talks and they would ring up. Who's giving a talk tonight? Ajahn Brahm. Okay, we're not coming. <laughs> And those few people who did come, after a while, five or ten minutes, oh this is rubbish, they started leaving. So I remember one terrible talk I gave one day, and I thought, oh Ajahn Brahm, never mind, you just can't do this. You know, haven't got the gift of giving, the, giving talks. So I thought I'd find some other way to, to you know, fulfill my life as a monk. The point was, I was at peace with that. I didn't mind being a failure. I think it was because I didn't mind, I became a success. You understand how success happens? When you're not afraid of failure. When you come across as confident, because you're not trying to please anybody or, or fulfill anything. You're just having a peaceful, relaxed time. When you actually can say to yourself, the door of my heart's open to me, no matter who I am, no matter what I'm doing, when you can really be at peace with yourself, you know the secret of having good relationships with others as well. When you know how to love yourself unconditionally, it's called the ending of desire, the ending of ill will, the ending of the defilements which the Buddha pointed out are the root cause of suffering. The root cause of your own personal suffering and the root cause of your suffering among other people as well. It's not you which is the problem. It's not your partner which is the problem. It's not life which is the problem. It's not even tsunamis which are the problem. It's our attitude towards these things is the problem. The world is the world. It's nature. It's the nature of tsunamis to happen. Very rarely but they do happen. It's the nature of husbands to be like that. For those of you about to be married, do some research first of all about what husbands are like. <laughs> Don't think that your one is going to be different. <laughs> For those of you who are going to get married to a girl, do your research, find out what wives are like. At least you know what you're doing. <laughs> the point here is that now you've been born as a human being, you know what being a human being is like. You know, part of being a monk, a fascinating part of being a monk, is being a counsellor. And when I first was a counsellor, you know, when people would come and tell me their problems, was, this was the experience which I had. I think maybe anyone else who does counselling has a similar experience. The first person who came to tell me the problems, I thought that was really interesting. The second person who came in said, oh, I've, I've heard that before somewhere. And the third person, here we go again. <laughs> Basically, they're all the same problems. 
Maybe like a different flavour, a different packaging, but underneath it was the same problem. You know, the lack of self-acceptance, you know, trying to struggle, trying to make their husbands be perfect or different than they are, trying to make their wives perfect, trying to make themselves perfect, trying to make their body perfect, trying to make life something it can never be. A misunderstanding about perfection and imperfection. Remember Ajahn Chah, one of his favourite stories, which is not in the book. He said there was a man who had a chicken and he wanted it to be a duck. And he complained to his friends and to his monks and said, Oh, why isn't my chicken like a duck? I want my chicken to be a duck. He's a crazy person. Look, chickens are chickens, ducks are ducks. What do you expect? That's what chickens are like. And of course the moral of that story is, I want my husband you know, to be like a monk. <laughs> Never to get angry at me. They always to be kind, always to be understanding and wise. Look, husbands are husbands, monks are monks. You can't expect your husband to <laughs> I want my wife to be like a saint. No, she's a wife, she's not a saint. <laughs> I want myself to be perfect. That's like wanting a chicken to be a duck. <laughs> now do you understand about accepting yourselves for who you are, accepting life for what it is? This is building the relationship, the wise relationship, which doesn't expect something which life can never give you. Suffering is wanting life to give you what it can never give you. Wanting chickens to be ducks. That's called suffering. Stupid craving. Wanting my body never to get old. How many of you just look in the mirror and use hair dye instead of allowing yourself to get grey? As for me, I never use hair dye. I just shave it off. <laughs> Just allow yourself to get old. It's wonderful getting old. You don't have to do so much. People don't expect you, except if you're a monk. Trouble is, I've got a terrible career prospects for me as a monk because I can't retire. In fact, the older I get, just the more invitations you receive. The older you get, the harder they work you. Look at the poor chief reverend. My goodness, he has to, he has to really work <laughs> But who cares anyway, you just enjoy it, you accept that. So the point is that you understand exactly what you're dealing with in life and who you are, and you tend to accept yourself who you are. And sometimes I tell the most ridiculous jokes. And sometimes people say, here he goes again. But look, I tell you, look, I can't stop that, that's my conditioning. <laughs> you, you know the reason why I tell jokes? It's because my father used to tell jokes. He was always uh, cracking jokes and getting into trouble because of it. I remember this one, <laughs> this one joke. It's got nothing to do with the talk, but it's time for a joke. <laughs> I remember he went to see my uncle, his brother. And he went into, my brother had a little um, cafe in Chelsea. And he went in there and said, oh, terrible news, brother. Just one of my friends at work, he said, he had this motorbike accident. And as soon as he went into uh, to hospital, they realised it was very serious, he had to have an amputation of his leg. And my uncle said, that's terrible. He said, that, that's not half of it, look what happened next. In a hospital, they wheeled him into the theatre, because of they were rushing, they cut off the wrong leg. 
And of course, as soon as they realized, you know, the one which was really injured, they couldn't leave that on. They had to cut that off as well, so he lost two legs. And of course, he sued the hospital, got a good lawyer and sued them, but he lost his case. He didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> that was typical of my father. So it's just conditioning, that's what it is. So I don't, if you complain about me telling bad jokes, it's not my fault. <laughs> it's all good. I accept myself who I am and that's it. So when you're at peace with yourself, you accept yourself for who you are. You know, this other joke he used to tell me, and this is a bit naughty one, he said, what, what fun does a monk have? He would say, and he would smile and say, none. <laughs> That's my father, very naughty. What, my <laughs> That's not true, of course. <laughs> so when you accept yourself as you are, when you're at peace with yourself, you've got this wonderful relationship with yourself. If you make a mistake, as I learned as a school teacher, if you do something wrong and people laugh at you, because you know as a school teacher, sometimes you're going to make some sort of mistake, and when the class in front of you starts laughing, you laugh as well. Because then the class is never laughing at you, they're laughing with you. And it's so different. It's a great piece of advice I learned as a school teacher. But of course I use that in my daily life now as well. If I make a stupid mistake or say something wrong, I never get embarrassed. If it's funny, I laugh as well. What's wrong with laughing at yourself? And that way, the world never laughs at you. It only laughs with you. Isn't it a wonderful way of living your life? Of having a good relationship with life and with yourself? So if you do something stupid, you just laugh. And that way you become more at peace with yourself, you have a relationship with yourself. What you're doing is like through wise attitudes to life, all these negative emotions which you have in life, things like depression, fear, what is fear anyway? Fear is like fear of screwing up. You know, that's why public speaking, people think, oh, if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to be in big trouble. No, if I say the wrong thing, it's great, I have a good laugh. If you say something stupid, then people find it very funny. And you don't need to see expensive psychologists or psychiatrists or therapists. As I was saying, just in the introduction there, there's some of these motivational psychologists who come to hotel rooms like this and they charge a huge amount of money the only difference between them and me is their haircut and their suits. <laughs> it's the only difference. But you, actually, you are actually getting sort of these amazing teachings which actually work. They do change people's lives because they change your life. It's looking at your relationship to yourself, allowing all that fear to disappear by accepting yourself who you are, allowing all that negativity, that self-hate. It's incredible how much self-hate there is inside each one of us. How we literally think we don't deserve to be happy. You know what? why people don't think, think they don't deserve to be happy? It's a lot of time because we've all done something wrong in the past. Has anyone lived a perfect life and they never said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing? 
I remember at my father's funeral when he was only I was only 16 when he died I felt very guilty there's two things which I felt really guilty for the first thing was that when I was growing up the musician I liked the most was Jimi Hendrix and I had a few of his records which I used to play and my father used to like Frank Sinatra and so because I was growing up I was a teenager you know you I understand now the psychology of this. When you're a 15, 16 year old teenager, you have to actually separate from your father. You have to be independent. You're not part of the family, it's just like a male thing. Actually to be independent, not to be part of the tribe. And for that period, no matter what your father says, you always want to do something different. It's just the nature of like growing out of the family, out of the nest and being independent. It goes to all cultures. So at the time, whenever my father would play his Frank Sinatra records, just on principle, I'd play my Jimi Hendrix records. And the point was that Jimi Hendrix was far louder than Frank Sinatra. <laughs> so I gave my father a terrible time. And of course, it was because I was a teenager, I was just going through that independence, rebellious thing. And of course, he died too soon. And I remember at his funeral, I, that's one thing I felt sad about. I said, why did I do that for? Because I love my father. And I never had the time to say sorry. And I felt guilty because of that. You know, I'd hurt someone I never really wanted to hurt. I was just being a teenager, that's all. And I felt guilty for a while. Until later on I learned I could forgive that. So I always imagine what would happen if my father was there, if he was still alive, if I saw his ghost and I said, look, I'm sorry about playing my Jimi Hendrix records. <laughs> I'd imagine he would just laugh at me and say, look, never mind, that was not a big thing. I know you're just being a teenager, that's all. He was wise enough to understand what teenagers are like. But until I could forgive that guilt, there was always something inside of me which thought, I can't be happy. You've got to be careful about that. Until you've forgiven you know, the errors of your past, until you can accept them as just you're a human being growing up, until you can accept that you're just like the trees in the forest, it's beautiful to be imperfect. While you can accept that, you say, the door of my heart's open to me no matter what I've done, then you allow yourself to be happy. Too many people have suffering in this world because they're still seeking to punish themselves for something they perceive they did or something they think they haven't done, which they should have done. This is the psychology of the human being. We seek for punishment because of guilt. And when the seeking for punishment, what that really means is that you don't allow yourself to have a happy relationship, you don't allow yourself to succeed in life, you don't let yourself have happiness. Now this is a powerful insight into the nature of a mind. If you can forgive and accept who you are, you find you will give yourself permission to be happy. And when you give yourself permission to be happy, all the positive emotions start to flow from that. That you can love yourself, you can love others, you can laugh, you can forgive and forget. And you don't give that unhappiness in your heart to other people. If you have happiness inside, that's what you give to others. 
So as a monk, I'm not perfect. As a monk, I say silly things and make mistakes from time to time. Not big mistakes, not breaking rules. But you know, still I make mistakes. And if you make mistakes, I laugh at other people. I'm at peace with myself. And because I'm at peace with myself, I can allow happiness to come in. I give myself permission to be happy. And when you give yourself permission to be happy, you can have inspiration, you can have joy, you can enjoy other people's company, because you enjoy your own company. There are negative and positive emotions in Buddhism. And becoming an enlightened being doesn't mean that you have no emotions at all. It was actually quite a revelation to be around enlightened beings like Ajahn Chah and all these other great monks I met when I was young in Thailand. Because I always thought that enlightened beings had horizontal mouths. They never smiled, they never got angry. I thought they were just equanimous, just like, like uh, robots. And it was marvelous actually to see that real enlightened beings had emotions the positive ones. They would laugh, they would smile, they had love, they had inspiration. But the negative ones, they had all disappeared. They would never get angry or be critical. They would always laugh and smile and have inspiration and joy. All the positive ones were what was left. So imagine that's you. All the negative emotions of fear, depression, anger, anxiety, panic, all those have gone because you've allowed life to be, you accepted yourself for who you are. All the positive emotions take their place. You become a happy person. Your relationship to yourself is one of happiness. Accepting yourself for who you are. Not trying so hard to be perfect. And then when you don't try to be perfect, you wake up one morning and you find you are perfect. Not by trying, but by accepting. Not by trying to change yourself, but by being at peace with yourself. Not by trying to get rid of your faults, but by forgiving them. There, you become perfect. And you realize the way to enlightenment. Also, you realize the way to have a great relationship with yourself. If you're a chicken, you're a chicken. If you're a duck, you're a duck. If you're a chicken, you go cock-a-doodle-doo. If you're a duck, you go quack-quack. And I don't try and be any different. <laughs> so that way, you come to peace. You come to acceptance. You come to freedom. Freedom from the struggle called craving. Freedom from ill will, from fear. And even freedom from depression. For any of you who are depressed, my guaranteed antidote for depression is to make peace with it. Oh, depression, thank you for coming. Enjoy it. Make fun with it. There's many advantages of being depressed. You don't have to go to work in the morning. You can sleep in as long as you like. <laughs> so why is it that people get upset at being depressed? It's not against the law to be depressed. Does it break any of the five precepts to be depressed? No. So you can just allow yourself to be depressed. If you allow yourself to door my heart open to depression, this is just an example. You find the depression disappears. 
when you accept and appreciate depression, then the cause of depression has been undermined and goes. The reason why people get deeper into depression because they get depressed about being depressed. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to have this depression. I want to be something different. I want to have energy. I want to be like I was last week. I want to be like Ajahn Brahm. I want to be like this, but I want to be like that. So that's the reason why we get depressed. Because <laughs> we want to be something different. So next time you get depressed, all oh, my heart's open. Depression, come in. Welcome. If you can do that, you find you don't get depressed. You undermine it, the cause of it, the power supply is turned off. An example about acceptance, the relationship you have with yourself. If you get that right, the whole world becomes perfect. You can live with anybody. You can live with yourself, you can live with your husband, your wife, no matter who they are. And you can live with your children, you can live with your friends. No matter who you are, who you're with, you can have a wonderful life. You don't have to change the world, just have to change yourself. Not really changing yourself, but change the way you look at yourself. Attitudes, that's all it is. And that is the way to build an effective relationship to yourself, first of all. You get that right, and all the things we're going to talk about after lunch all come into place. So, that's enough for me. Now is a time for questions. So what I was saying, building effective relationships to yourself, are there any questions to be asked now? And you've got the microphones over there. So if you have, those of you who want to take a quick toilet break, it's a great time to have a quick toilet break. I hope it's only a toilet break and you're not going out forever because you're upset at what I said. But if you are, the door of my heart's open to you. <laughs> So, is there any questions now about the effective relationship to yourself? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, those of you who want to ask questions, please uh, position yourself behind the microphones, one after the other, uh, so that the waiting time from one question to the other will be minimized. All right? So, take your turns, one after the other, behind the microphones. Questions? Who's going to ask the first question? Why don't you get the first question? The other questions come very, very quickly. It's actually the, the word which we use for this talk, relationship, is a very, very good word because it's an attitude problem. The way you relate to yourself is where the problem lies. So it's not yourself is the problem. It's the relationship you have to yourself. And that's why the Buddha used to say, just like a mother loves her only child, that's how you should love yourself. As if you were like your own little baby. So you're always kind to this little baby called you. It's like it's your only son, your only daughter. Doesn't matter what they do in life, they're my child. I will always love and care for them. Can you do that to yourself? Well, whoever I am, whatever I do, I'm like a child. I make mistakes. Nevertheless, I'll always be at peace and care for me. That's getting a good relationship to yourself. If you can do that, then my goodness, you won't need any psychologist or psychiatrist ever again in your life. You also you have good health as well. 
So much of bad health, sicknesses, all come from bad attitudes towards oneself. From psychological blocks inside. I don't know how many... Oh, this was... Uh, I'm not sure if I said this yesterday about one of the uh, doctors in Penang who told me once that she was just about to retire, a Buddhist doctor, and she said she noticed that all of the people who came to her surgery, she was a specialist, an oncologist, she could tell who was going to survive and who were going to die without even looking at the, the, uh, the results and the tests. Because she could just see, just it was an attitude problem. If someone had the correct attitude, she said they were going to survive. It didn't matter even how advanced the cancer was. It was just how they dealt with it. So that was a far more reliable indicator of who would survive and who would die. And I've heard, that was the first time I heard that from a doctor in Penang. And I've heard that countless times since from specialists. They can just look at a person, talk with them and know with 99% accuracy, she's going to live, he's going to die. Not the cancer, it's the mind. Your relationship with that disease. Okay, we've got the first question. Ajahn, I'd just like to clear my mind regarding accepting myself as we've been hearing one hour ago. Is this uh, accepting ourselves in any way related to contentment of what we are? So, could you repeat the question? I didn't quite catch the first part. The first part is regarding the, the one-hour talk that you've given us, you know, the examples of accepting ourselves. Yeah. Now, I'm trying to relate that to contentment. Uh, yeah. is, is, is it the same? It is almost the same, but sometimes with contentment, sometimes people uh, confuse that with inaction. And I always like to introduce the idea of duties. So now I have my duties as well, but I'm content to do them. So contentment doesn't mean that one is inactive in the world, that one doesn't contribute in the world. Sometimes this is the confusion people have between the Bodhisattva and the Arahat. And now there should be no confusion there at all, because the one who is content, the Arahat, will always be very proactive and caring and compassionate in the world they would really go out there to help. Because there's no such thing as like a selfish arahat because an arahat's got no self. They've abandoned that sense of, of me. And so real contentment will be very proactive in the world. The content person will be happy to be by themselves if there's nothing to do and be very, very happy to really serve and look after others. That's what real contentment is. Does that make sense? It does, Rev. Thank you. Okay, very good. Because sometimes that people say, oh, I'm, I'm a Theravada monk, I'm supposed to be selfish. I'm supposed to be just looking after my own enlightenment. But what am I doing all the way from my home here in Kuala Lumpur, working really hard all day? <laughs> it's not just a talk this, this afternoon or uh, this morning, this afternoon. I'm also going to Bubs this evening to give another talk. So I think I should start a union for monks. <laughs> They'll stop me working too hard. <laughs> but I don't mind. I'm doing my duty and I enjoy it. 
So I'm content to work hard. So that's what contentment is. Yeah. Um, hi, uh, morning. Um, as when you related your story to us about your dad, um, how, how do you forgive yourself when you um, did something wrong and then after that, just within one week, someone close to you passed on. Yeah. Can you actually speak a bit louder? Because it must be the bad acoustics. I can't hear up here on the I'm stage. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, as when you related your story about your dad, um, how do you forgive yourself? How do you accept yourself? Uh, forgive yourself. Forgive? Oh, forgive yourself, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's amazing that to forgive yourself is the easiest thing in the world to do. However, people find it very difficult because uh, in our societies we're always very fault-finding and we think people need blame and punishment. They have to work off their crimes. However, there's nothing in Buddhism to say you need to be punished for anything you've done. The whole point of um, dealing with uh, bad actions or bad speech is just so people don't do it again. So the whole idea of like being punished is not really important. As long as you become a better person, you learn not to make the same mistake again. That's enough. So we don't need to punish very often. But sometimes because we feel if we don't punish ourselves, we repeat the action. That's why we don't want to forgive ourselves. We're afraid that forgiveness would mean that the bad action is repeated again. The truth of the matter is that if you forgive, you are less likely to repeat the bad action. Not more likely. If you forgive, you say your partner in life who sort of mistreats you, if you really forgive them and show them a lot of love rather than anger back, the chances are that after a while they'll stop uh, repeating those bad actions. And the same is with you as well. If you don't forgive yourself, because that you have the lack of... Um, good relationship to yourself, you're liable to repeat bad actions or bad speech. So, but to the other part of forgiving yourself, which is also important, which is another key to being able to forgive yourself, is to be able to see something inside of you other than your mistakes, to see something inside of you worthy of forgiveness. Because, you know, you say you take someone like, you know, in the West, like Osama bin Laden. Mr. Bush says no way should he be forgiven. Because he can't see any redeeming features in that man. He can't see anything worthy of forgiveness. However, if you pay a little bit of attention, do some research, you find that there's no person in this world who's all bad. Everybody has got some part to them some redeeming features, which if you can only see those redeeming features, their goodness, it becomes worthy of forgiveness. The story of my brick wall makes that very clear. When I could only see two bad bricks, I needed to destroy that wall. I could not forgive it or let it stand. But as soon as somebody pointed out there was more to that wall than the mistakes, then I could accept it. I literally forgave that war. Same with you. If you've made a couple of mistakes and that's all you see, 
Forgiveness becomes an impossibility. There's nothing worthy of forgiveness there. It's a rotten me. And I want to destroy me. If you can see the good qualities in you, then you can forgive. Like the story of that man in the primary school who had to put down the bad qualities of his enemy and also the good qualities and then give those good qualities, only the good qualities, to his enemy. It showed each person there was something worthy of forgiveness, worthy of friendship, worthy of love. And because of that, there was harmony in the classroom and harmony in life. If whenever we have a conflict, if instead of demonizing our opponents, which happens in wars and conflicts, if we could see, if the Iraqis could see something beautiful in the Americans, and the Americans see something they could really, really, really respect in the Mujahideen in Iraq, then there could be conflict resolution, there could be friendship, and the whole thing could actually be solved. We could forgive once we see something worthy of respect in our adversaries. In the same way, there can be resolution of inner conflict once you see something worthy of respect inside yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Ajahn Brown, is there a limit to one's uh, stupid action such that you can forgive yourself? If that's the case, like for example, a killer, can he get peace with himself? If he does, that means we don't need a physical jail for him. Yeah, true. It's, I told that story last night about uh, forgiveness and jails and, and hell realms. Because I'd recently been to Java and uh, on the, the great Buddhist monument, Borobudur, there are many carvings. And one of the carvings which I noticed there was, it was a Jataka tale of a man who had just pushed his mother over, had hit her. And that's a very, very bad karma to actually to, to hit your mum. And after he died, he went to this hell realm and he met this man who had like a, a wheel of razor blades cutting into his head continuously. That was the punishment. And this man said, I've been enduring this for 600 years because I hit my mother. And I was told when this first happened in 600 years time, I'd meet another man who, did his hit, who had hit his mother and that's you. Now you will take this wheel and now also torture your head for the next 600 years. And so straight away the wheel left this poor man who had been enjoying it for 600 years and now went to this other man. This other man said, well look, if that's going to happen to me too, and in the 600 years somebody else has had to face this torture, let me face this torture for eternity. I'll take on the bad karma of all other beings who hit their mothers. And just with that thought, which was like a thought of like forgiving others and taking away their pain, the wheel just vanished and he went from hell realm into heaven realm. And that's a little story which is actually an ancient Buddhist story. But just the power of forgiveness, the power of compassion, the power of love towards oneself and others can stop the pain straight away. Angulimala never needed a prison even though he was, a, uh, he was, in Buddhist tradition, a person who had murdered 999 people. 
So really, the, what's the point of a prison anyway? Sometimes people think it is to punish because we have this weird way of dealing with problems in life, of punishing them. But you ask people, is it really to punish? Do you really want to hurt those people? So know that if we don't put them in jail, if we don't punish them, then other people will do the same bad acts themselves. But all those years we've had prisons, we've had like in Malaysia beatings, whippings, uh, capital punishment, executions, does that stop crime? Everybody knows in the West that, that uh, prisons don't work. You have to keep building more prisons. And they cost a lot of money. Fortunately, <coughs> some people have got other ideas. There was a book which I read as a young man, which had a big effect on me. It was written in the, about over a hundred years ago, by a man called Samuel Butler. And in, he, it was just like a, a book of satire. He swapped things around a little bit. He imagined this uh, community, which doesn't exist, just a fantasy world, in which if you commit a crime, it's looked upon as being like an illness. You go and see a doctor. So it's like a mental illness. Crime is looked upon as an illness. But if you have what we call a sickness, say you get bird flu, or you get dengue, or you just get a little cold, that's your fault. So you get sent to jail for that. <laughs> and but they had this one scene in there, I wrote about it in my book, where a person had a cold and was in front of the magistrate accused of having a cold. It was quite obvious because he was sneezing and coughing and he did have a cold, so he's pronounced guilty. And when the magistrate gave the sentence, he said, this is not the first time you've appeared before me with a cold. And I warned you last time, eat better food, exercise, don't have so much stress. It's your fault you've got a cold. You're spreading all those germs around other people. You're a menace to society. So he gave him about three or four years in jail for having a cold. And you know, there's some logic behind that, isn't it? If you're sick, if you get like heart disease, isn't that, that your fault? For eating the wrong foods, stressing yourself and being too lazy to take exercise? Shouldn't you get sent to jail for having a coronary? <laughs> you know, there's some truth to that, isn't there? I'm not actually saying you should do this. This is just using this as a means to put across a point. Why is it that we punish people for crimes when it could be like a social disease? But we actually treat people who have illnesses because we, the point of having an illness is compassion to make sure they get better so the disease or the virus is no longer there. Why can't we have the same way for dealing with crime? Have hospitals, not prisons to treat the disease of crime, not to punish it. So that's actually what I would like to see. Crime is a disease. It's the wrong attitude, it's the wrong way of thinking. It should be treated, not punished. In that way I think there'll be less criminals in the world and less jails. It's the same with you or your family. If someone does a mistake, 
let's treat the mistake so they don't commit the mistake again. But let's not use punishment. Sometimes, obviously, some people do need to be removed from society to protect themselves and others. In the same way, if you've got some infectious disease, you need to be isolated, quarantined for a while until the disease goes away until you're not a danger to society anymore. So it's all right to have isolation units, but not as punishment, just as protection, that's all. <laughs>